Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Good morning. I'm Sabrina Stafford. And I'm Grace Stafford. And today our scripture readings are from Luke 2, 8 through 11 and Luke 17, 20 through 21. And there were shepherds living out in the fields near fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, I bring you good news. That will cause great joy for all the people today. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Once I'm being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or There it is, because the kingdom of God is in our midst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to be God. Good morning, Vine community. Uh, we have spent the last three weeks in this series that we're calling uh, The Gospel Is, and we've been exploring all the different things we could think of when we hear that phrase or consider the phrase, the gospel. And to be honest, we could go for another 10 weeks, and I feel like we'd just be scratching the surface of what the good news about Jesus' life and death and his promises for us, what they actually mean. Um, but today, we're going to do something that maybe we should have done the first week, which is we're going to consider what that phrase meant when Jesus said it. What did that phrase mean 2,000 years ago? Because this, uh, this phrase, the gospel, did not originate with the movement that Jesus created. It, in fact, it actually has a rich history to itself. So this word, euangelion, is a Greek word that we, uh, was prominent in that day and age, um, and what it really meant, it meant good news, but it was honestly, it was used as an announcement. When something was noteworthy for the entire kingdom, they would make this declaration, uh, an announcement of good news. A gospel message would be sent out throughout the whole kingdom. Uangleon, a, 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 a gospel message. And what we find is that a lot of times these messages, these kingdom uh, messages, these this, uh, this declarations were usually about a victory in battle. It also would be about uh, that kingdom conquering another. So it would be, be about like this conquest and, and about having this new piece of land and new, new, uh, uh, this new community just grafted in out of a, out of a violent attack. And, or else uh, the most common use of the phrase good news was a declaration about uh, a prince being born, or a change in the throne, something like that would be news that would a whole kingdom would hear. And so even in this past week, I heard a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, he, he recalled one of his first memories growing up was his mother brought him to the town square where he grew up in England, and they heard the town's crier uh, walking throughout the town square with a bell and yelling and declaring this announcement, this declaration that King George VI is dead. Long, li long live Queen Elizabeth. 
that royal decree was going out throughout all of England, all in the same day there in, in 1952, much like what we what, what we what we can can see being happened uh, in 2,000 years ago. Now, if you know any history, you know any time that there is uh, a change in royalty or in a new king was declared, this good news would not be good news for all. Usually, with a transfer of power, it would actually introduce this really fragile moment, a moment of anxiety that some would benefit from this change and many would perish. A a declaration of a new emperor would honestly mean that there would be a lot of bloodshed. In fact, the first time we find this phrase, good news, in the Bible, we find it in 2 Samuel chapter 4. A herald came to David to tell him the good news that King Saul was dead. And thinking that David would be delighted that someone who, who was a sworn enemy of David's, someone who promised and took a vow to kill David, that he thought that this good news would be received by David, but in fact, David turned around and had the messenger killed. He killed the messenger. Uh, though it was good news as an announcement it, for the entire kingdom, it was actually initiated the season of chaos uh, for many. So, okay, let's think about this together. If this concept, the gospel, was most commonly used to declare a military victory, the conquering of a new people, or a change, uh, or an announcement of a new king that would honestly bring about anxiety and instability within the whole kingdom, how interesting is it that this phrase, the gospel, was co-opted by the movement that Jesus created? that they took this word, this phrase, the gospel, and actually flipped it upside down. This is so clear in Luke chapter 2, as we consider this phrase, what the good news actually was going to be with Jesus. So this is Luke chapter 2, a familiar uh, story for our our Advent season and for the Christmas pageants all, (laughs) all around this world. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. This is, the shepherds were terrified. But the angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the King, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So this right here, this, this little moment we have just kind of nice and, and packaged for our Christmas experience, there's a lot going on here because what we find here is a royal decree is being set out and heralds are being sent. And who are the heralds? They're angels in, he- in the heavens. And what were they declaring? They, well, they were declaring what the gospel usually was used to declare a, a change in the kingdom. A new king has been born. But notice here a different kind of gospel because this good news will cause not anxiety, not fear, but cause great joy, not just for the elect, not for the few, but for all people. So this is what this good news will be in the hands of Jesus. It will cause great joy for all the people. It was broad. It was expansive. The angels here were taking this idea of the gospel 
and they were flipping it on its head. This is a foreshadowing of the great reversal that Jesus will continually bring about in this world, that Jesus is ushering in a different kind of kingdom. And that kind of kingdom will cause great joy for all people. This is good news, not just for some, but for all. So we could understand if that's what that phrase, the gospel, really was about. You can understand why the three magi traveled uh, from the east. They came to, to Israel after seeing the heavens declare that there's a new, a new prince or king was born, that they, they traveled to Israel. Where do they go to find this king? Well, they went to Herod's palace, of course, where the, a new king would be born. They'd go to the palace, right, expecting that that would be the place, but instead they would find this new king in a barn with poor parents who are confused and excited. And sadly, when Herod heard about the good news that was being declared, uh, it became very dangerous. Herod, in our scripture, was threatened by this declaration, by this announcement. And so he had all infant boys two years and younger killed in that region. Because sometimes good news in the hands of the wrong people becomes horrible news. And throughout Jesus' life, a surprising kingdom would be established. This concept of Jesus' kingdom would be central for Jesus' teaching, for his life, and for the gospel readings that we have in our Bible. In the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we find is that word kingdom is used 119 times. 119 times. So, for instance, it began with John the Baptist declaring that the kingdom of God is near. In Matthew 4, Jesus describes his ministry like this. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus would later say in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 6, Seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness, and all things will be given to you as well. Later on, we find that Jesus, he, he loved to tell parables, stories about the kingdom. He would say that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in, in a field, like a wedding party. The kingdom of God is like yeast working its way through dough. It's like a prodigal child who's far from home remembers his father's grace and mercy. The kingdom of heaven is like scattering seed and watching what it does. Jesus would astonish people by saying things about his kingdom like this. Truly, I tell you that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. <laughs> he also would say things like this. Once being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So why am I belaboring this point? Well, the reason why is this, because it would be shocking for the followers of Jesus, those who saw Jesus and heard Jesus uh, live out his ministry, heard his teachings, it would be shocking to them for them to engage in, with us in our life and to find out that the kingdom of Jesus is not more central to our shared faith. Why? Because this was a primary topic 
of Jesus' teachings, and it was a primary, a primary mission for Jesus' life. The gospel would be synonymous with Jesus becoming king <clears throat> and bringing forth a new kingdom. So this has caused me to ask recently, it's caused me to ask, why is the idea of King Jesus so unfamiliar to us? Well, I, I have a theory. I think that seeing Jesus as king actually imposes on us. We would prefer Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, as Restorer, Jesus as the Giver of Grace. Uh, we, we love those concepts. We embrace those ideas. But when Jesus is King, there are different implications. When Jesus is Savior, we can, we can encounter that saving grace in our life and maybe somehow trick ourselves to think that we can go on living the way we want to. When Jesus is the restorer of our life, we can be grateful for what God has done, and then we go along our way. But if Jesus is king, if Jesus is my king, I am no longer in charge of my life. I and we are members, if I dare say subjects, in a kingdom where someone rules over us. They declare what is the right way to exist in this kingdom. So we... We don't like that. We back away from that. And I feel like in doing so, we miss out on the sweetness of what Jesus was all about. You can notice the preference that we have of who Jesus is by the narrative we use to describe his life. We usually have four different snapshots. We have little baby Jesus in the manger. <laughs> we have Jesus three years on the road ministering. We have Jesus on the cross, and we have Jesus on the tomb, in the empty tomb. But what we miss is Jesus as king. We miss that fifth picture of Jesus who now reigns in power and reigns for eternity. The story is not over on Easter in many ways. The story of our life with Christ is now beginning. The story begins there as Jesus reigns on the throne. Now, this is a challenging concept because we like to be people in charge. We like to have that kind of agency in our life to choose our own way. We don't like the idea of being subjects, especially in America where we prize independence. Um, we, we bristle along that idea. But let me tell you why it's good news. It's because the most kind, loving, gracious, wise person ever to walk this earth now reigns and is in charge. Jesus Christ is on the throne for all of eternity, the one that knows how life was intended to be, the one who created everything. He now reigns and rules. And he does this not to subjugate people into some sort of you know, posture of dominance. He does this so that we could experience a type of peace that, is, that happens, that's released when we live well with each other and we live in, in the right way with God. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus wants to bring about in this world. And so this is the, we need to continue to flip the script upside down of the type of king and kingdom that we are now a part of because the one who reigns rules with mercy and grace, with compassion and justice. And so... This is why when we are asked the question, what is the gospel? The most literal response is the gospel is that Jesus is king. He reigns. He's in power. 
And there is a kingdom that is guaranteed in heaven and yet comes to us and extends to us today. So if this is the case, then how do we share this gospel? So our work is to continue to be the heralds of that kingdom, the ones who have good news to share. We're called to be messengers sent into this world to declare that Jesus is king, that there's good news for all, that good news that will, call, that will cause great joy for the entire world. So we are called to do that in word and in deed. And anytime we give glimpses into a new kingdom, into Jesus' kingdom, we are sharing the good news. I noticed this this past week. At the end of, of Matthew chapter 4, we find a description of what Jesus was all about. So again, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That's how Matthew 4 ends. And we should take notice of what happens right after that. Right after that picture of what Jesus was about, bringing about good news in word and in deed, what happens right after that is Jesus climbs up on a hillside in front of a large gathering of his followers, which was mostly made up of poor farmers, ordinary people, and he begins by saying these famous words, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for those who are persecuted. You know, it's funny. I used to think that these Beatitudes, um, these sayings right here, which we call the Beatitudes, were like a moral scorecard. Like we, this is now the standard we got to be a little bit more meek, a little bit more merciful, a little bit more righteous. And it's almost like, uh, in my mind, like the measure that we have to, uh, to go against. Like imagine, if you will, going to a theme park and, as a kid, wanting to ride that roller coaster, and then there's that like, cartoon figure like a Daffy Duck with his finger out saying, you can't have to be this tall to ride this ride, which with a sharp and a gene pool was very unfair for a long time. <laughs> but, you know, like this is this measurement to be able to enter into the kingdom, be able to, to experience. You have to be like this, this meek. Like you have to be this, uh, this merciful, this forgiving. And if you're not, sorry, you have to go find another ride. But what we find here, there might be a different way of reading this, is I wonder if the Beatitudes are actually describing how the kingdom of God breaks into this world. Not merely a standard by we have to, all right, we have to try to get our life together and get up to a certain point, but I wonder, in fact, that it's, this is how the kingdom of God breaks into this world through surprising blessings, through, through the people for which this world does not consider blessed. That Jesus is saying it's actually, you're the ones who are going to bring my kingdom in. You're the ones, though you might feel like you're in the bottom of society, you're the ones that are actually going to usher in a new kingdom and be herald to the kind of kingdom that I'm bringing into this world. In, again, N.T. Wright, New, new Testament scholar, I heard uh, him say, uh, when Jesus became king, he didn't send in the tanks. He sent in the meek, the peacemakers, the poor in spirit, those who were ready and prepared to mourn, and through their presence, the kingdom broke out. 
Jesus' work in this world was to extend this kingdom into the darkest places in our lives, in our society, in our world, and to have that surprising kingdom break through ordinary people, through these heralds who were just living their life with God and bringing about the kingdom. And even right after those Beatitudes, Jesus went on to say this, you are the salt of the earth. And you is like plural. So y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. You guys are how my kingdom is going to break into this world. And the, conti- the kingdom continued to spread through acts of forgiveness and kindness, through words of mercy and relationships of grace, through the defending of the rights of the oppressed and the exploited, These are the ways in which uh, Jesus' prayers are enacted of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What an upside-down kingdom we're a part of. Never would you expect that a man who chose to live in poverty and spend three years leading a ragtag group of followers would do much. I'm reminded of a quote that Napoleon Bonaparte shared that Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire, his kingdom, upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Those words are as true today as they were then, as they were 2,000 years ago. This is the surprising nature of Jesus' kingdom built upon radical love. And any time in our lives that we give a glimpse into that kind of kingdom, the good news has been declared. So, you know, we've spent the last weeks exploring this idea of the gospel, how the gospel is transformation, how the gospel is being able to see more clearly, how the gospel is liberation. And, and, and you know, all those, we could, again, spend 10 more weeks and just be scratching the surface But if the gospel does not end with Jesus as king, it all falls apart. Because the only way that we have hope that there's transformation, liberation, salvation, redemption, everything else, is that Jesus is still reigning in power, that Jesus is still on the throne. So I want to end by addressing the question, how how do we enter into this kingdom? Well, it begins by seeing what King Jesus has done for you what he's done for you. As he headed to his death, the Romans wanted to mock him. And so what did they do? Well, they gave him a robe, a king's robe. They gave him a staff. They fixed him upon a cross like it was his throne. Pilate, even, he did not know what he was doing, but God knew. Pilate made a sign that was to hang above him that said, King of the Jews. Interestingly, though, he wanted it to be written in the three most uh, well-known languages of the world of that time so that all would be able to see and to know that Jesus here is a fraud. This king has done nothing, but without even knowing it, this upside-down kingdom was being exploded into our reality, that Jesus Christ is king, a different kind of king, upon the cross that Jesus was more than a savior. He is the king of kings. And through that act, we have a picture 
of the type of kingdom that God wants to break into our lives. We enter into the kingdom when we see that king and then we receive him. That means that we step off the thrones of our life and to enter into his kingdom. We do so by renouncing all other allegiances that we have, all other, other uh, loyalties that we have in this life. Our primary allegiance is now to Christ, to Jesus and to his kingdom. Our allegiances are not to a nation, to a people, to a particular church, a political party, a leader, or the plans I have for my life. Our primary allegiance, our greatest loyalty is to a king in a kingdom. And any time our allegiances in this world come against Jesus' kingdom, we remember to whom we belong. This is why Jesus would often share confusingly harsh words like, unless you hate your mother and your father, you cannot be my disciple. <laughs> Jesus is not endorsing hating one's family but for a culture where family was everything, Jesus was trying to reestablish an order of where true devotion has to be. It's not to your parents. It's actually to me. You need to ensure your greatest allegiance is to me because if not, uh, you're calling someone else king. And in my kingdom, nothing can overshadow your devotion to me because I want the best for you. Again, this is for your own good. Because when, because when my family is my king, when my leaders are, are, are my king, they will always disappoint. They will always let us down. Every other kingdom in this world would, will fail us. But we have Jesus as, as our king, as the king of kings, wanting to give us a different kind of kingdom. Jesus, out of love, wants to lead our lives. He wants to defend and protect you. He wants to provide for you. And this should cause us all to pause and think, what, where in my life is, is, is the greatest devotion? Like, where does my allegiance actually lie? Where's my true loyalty? Is Jesus really on the throne of my life? For us to enter into Christ's kingdom, we have to clear all the thrones in our life. We have to break free from all allegiances that have a tendency to dominate us. And we need to put Christ on the throne of our life. Because this is actually the gospel. This is the gospel for us. This is good news. That there is a king who wants to reign and rule in your life. That begins now and it extends throughout all of eternity.